a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Can you believe we have turned another calendar page? I know, for some people it's like, okay, can we just go ahead and skip the next one then and cut right to the chase and get to 2021? You know, there's a time where I think I would have actually said, yeah, let's get through this. Let's get through 2020 and see what the next year holds. But my optimism is waning just a little bit. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wondering if uh, 2021 might even be, who knows, a little bit more challenging than this year. I guess there's only one way to find out, and that's to charge boldly and faithfully forward, and we'll figure it out as, as we go. It's been a crazy year, though, so far. And speaking of crazy... Uh, talked to a coworker. When was it? Saturday? Yeah, ran into him Saturday, and he said his uh, wife had gone to Costco, and he says, "Dude, they're completely out of toilet paper again." I haven't been for a while, so I, you know, I haven't uh, been keeping tabs on this, but yeah, you know, the election's coming up tomorrow, and uh, you know, the the news reports are already showing uh, businesses and government offices around the country, not just in Washington D.C but in uh, Los Angeles and Denver and other major cities, boarding up their windows in anticipation of, oh, I don't know, something. Like, perhaps uh, some people may get, uh, how how would you say, a a little rowdy or perhaps a little bent out of shape, depending on uh, how things go for the election. So, I'm not trying to say I told you so. But I would just like the record to show that, uh, for the record, I've been saying here for quite a few weeks, the time to get stocked up on things you need most is now. So that that window may be closing. I hope you're in a good situation right now. Um, Here's the one thought I am going to offer, okay? So just so I don't sound like I'm patting myself too hard on the back. This is probably a great time to reconnect with your neighbors. Make sure you're looking out for each other. If your neighbors have little kids, ask them, do you need diapers? Do you need formula, baby wipes, anything like that? What can I keep an eye out for when I do go to the store? Because as we saw back in March, this kind of stuff can can spiral in a weird direction fairly quickly. I mean, the difference between, ah, everything's great, and hey, there's no toilet paper, and now they're limiting us on how many, you know, uh, packages of uh, chicken or beef you can buy or whatever. Yeah. It, uh, it comes on pretty quick. And as we try to make sense of it, my sincere hope is that I'm not fanning the flames of fear or otherwise causing more anxiety by the things that I'm sharing. When I tell you, I think it's a good idea to be prepared. I'm not telling you that because I think we, we should all be scared and the world is coming to an end around us. I'm doing it because that's something you and I actually have control over. We can, we can affect that sort of change Whereas uh, some of the bigger geopolitical stuff, yeah, it's it's really not within our reach. Even a lot of the policy stuff at the national level and sometimes even at the state level, it's out of our reach. Peace of mind comes from understanding where your influence can best be wielded and taking care of that. 
doesn't mean you're turning a blind eye to the other stuff that's going on. You can still be aware of it. You're just not wasting time or precious moral energy spinning your wheels over something that you really don't have the ability to, to impact. That makes sense, right? So here's a question that comes up, though. As we look at what's going on around us, what is the bigger game that's going on about us? found an excellent article this morning on lourockwell.com. We are pawns in a bigger game than we realize. Now, maybe you've heard the term, the Great Reset. This is becoming uh, more and more common. This, it's, it's entered the, the vernacular of, of the common man and woman, at least in, in America. But what exactly is it? Chris Martinson, writing for Peak Prosperity, takes a pretty good poke at it, and I think makes a lot of sense. Here's what Chris says. Chris begins with a quote from Sherlock Holmes, Adventures of Silver Blaze. This is a quote from Sherlock Holmes. I had grasped the significance of the silence of the dog, for one true inference invariably suggests others. Obviously, the midnight visitor was someone whom the dog knew well. And from here, Chris Martinson says, is it possible to make sense out of nonsense? Okay, good question. So much these days is an incoherent mess. It's complete nonsense. Page one excitedly beams about a glorious rebound in GDP. Yay! Economic growth! Page two worryingly notes that your complete failure of Siberian Arctic ice to reform during October and that Hurricane Zeta, so many storms this year, we're now into the Greek alphabet, has made punishing landfall. And his point here is that each is a narrative. Each has its own inner logic but they simply do not have any external coherence to each other. So it's nonsensical to be excited about rising economic growth while also concerned that each new unit of growth takes the planet further past a critical red line. In other words, the narratives are incompatible. So which one should we pick? Okay, here's a good thought. In the end, reality always has the final say. As Guy McPherson states, nature bats last. So better we choose to follow the narrative that hews closest to what, reacts, what reality actually is versus what we desperately don't want it to be. And this is where he gets into this great reset. And it starts with the understanding, they. I'll let you fill in the gaps as to who they may be. They don't care about us. While issues like climate change and economic growth may be difficult to fully grasp and unravel, direct threats to our lives and or livelihoods are much more concrete and something we can react to and resist. Chris McPherson says such immediate and direct threats are now fully in play, and once again they're accompanied by narratives that are completely at odds with each other. Now, in this case, he says, I'm speaking of COVID and the ways in which our national and global managers are choosing to respond or not. That's the they that he's talking about. It's a truly coherent, incoherent mess, rather, about which both social media and the increasingly irrelevant media are working quite hard to misinform us. So here is the mainstream narrative about COVID-19 in the West. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. It's a quite deadly and novel disease. There are no effective treatments. Sadly, no double-blind, placebo-controlled trials exist to support some of the wild claims out there about various off-patent, cheap and widely available supplements and drugs. Health authorities care about saving lives. They care so much, in fact, that along with politicians, they've decided to entirely shut down economies. 
That narrative, by the way, also says there's a huge second wave rampaging across the U.S. and Europe, and there's nothing we can do to limit it except shut down businesses and people's ability to travel and gather. That narrative also says you need to fear this virus and its associated disease. All we can do is wait for a vaccine. Now, I would think that would sound pretty familiar to most of us, right? Okay, here is the alternative narrative that Chris McPherson says he's uncovered after nine months of almost daily research and reporting. The alternative narrative is this. It is not an especially dangerous disease, and it's certainly not novel. There's a huge assortment of very effective, cheap, and widely available preventatives and treatments, including, but not limited to, vitamin D, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, selenium, famotidine, which I guess is pepsid, and melatonin. This... uh, This other narrative, the alternative narrative, also says use of a combination of these mostly over-the-counter supplements could reasonably be expected to drop the severity of illness and already low mortality rate by 90% or more. Western health authorities have shown either zero interest in the results of studies, mainly conducted in poorer nations on these combination therapies, or they've actively run studies designed to fail so these cheap, effective therapies could be dismissed, or set up proper studies but which started late, have immensely long study periods and most likely won't be done before a vaccine is hastily rushed through development. Now again, looking, looking at his alternative narrative here, I think there's a ring of truth to just about everything he has said here. And he goes, by the way, every single one of my assertions and claims is backed by links and supporting documentation from scientific and clinical trials and studies. I'm not conjecturing here. I'm recounting the summary of 10 months worth of inquiry. And he says, the conclusion I draw from my narrative versus theirs is that we can no longer assume that the public health or saving lives has anything to do with explaining or understanding the actions of these health managers. And he notes that he cannot bring himself to use the word authorities. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. But again, it raises the question, are we pawns in a bigger game than we realize? And what does it have to do with the coming Great Reset? We'll tackle that just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from Chris McPherson. We are bigger pawns, I'm sorry, we are pawns in a bigger game than we realize. The coming great reset. And I, and I hope you'll check this out at the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for November 2nd, 2020. And there's a great comparison of the prevailing narrative, at least in the West, versus the alternative narrative. And I think he's got some pretty good food for thought. He says, the conclusion I draw from my narrative is that we can't assume that the public health or saving lives has anything to do with explaining or understanding the actions of these health managers. He says, after we eliminate the impossible, 
This is quoting uh, Arthur Conan Doyle again. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Well, in this case, Chris says, uh, after we eliminate the impossible, which is that somehow these massive, well-funded bodies have missed month after month of accumulating evidence in support of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, also vitamin D, NAC, zinc, selenium, and doxycycline, azithromycin, what remains must be the truth. As improbable as it seems, he says, the only conclusion we're left with is that the machinery of politics, money, and corporate psychology is suppressing life-saving treatments because these managers have priorities besides public health and saving lives. Now, this is a terribly difficult conclusion because it means suspending so much that we hold dear. Things like the notion that people are basically good, the idea that government generally means well, the thought that somehow when the chips are down and a crisis is afoot, good will emerge and triumph over evil. But Chris McPherson says, I'm sorry to say the exact opposite of all of that has emerged as true. Medical doctors in the UK NHS system purposely used toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine far too late in the disease cycle to be of any help simply to make a point about hydroxychloroquine. They rather wanted desperately for that drug to fail, so they made it fail. After deliberately setting their trial up for failure, they concluded hydroxychloroquine doesn't help and even makes things worse. He says, note that in order to be able to make this claim, they had to be willing to cause harm, even to let people die. What kind of health official does that? Not one who actually has compassion, a heart, or functioning level of sympathy. It's an awful conclusion, but he says it's what remains after we eliminate the impossible. So once you get past the emotional toll, what then? Well, he says science has proven that cheap, safe, and significantly protective compounds exist to limit both COVID-related death and disease severity. Yet all of the main so-called health authorities in the major Western countries are nearly completely ignoring, if not outright banning, these safe, cheap, and effective compounds. Now this is crazy-making for independent observers like him, and, and for you and me at the same time. He says, because the data is so clear, it's irrefutable at this point. These medicines and treatments not only work, but they work really, really well. However, most people will be unable to absorb the data, let alone move beyond it to wrestle with the implications. Why? Because such data is belief-shattering. Absorbing this information is not an intellectual process, it's an emotional one. He says, I don't know why human nature decided to invest so much in developing a tight wall around the belief systems that control our thoughts and actions, but it has. And he says, I'm sure there was some powerful evolutionary advantage, one that's now being hijacked daily by social media AI programs to nudge us in desired directions. One that's being leveraged by shabby politicians, hucksters, fake gurus, and con men to steer advantage away from the populace and towards themselves. The neural wiring of beliefs is what it is. We have to recognize that and move on. Some people will be much faster in their adjustment process than others. Notably, the Peak Prosperity Tribe, he says, is populated with many fast adjusters, which is unsurprising given the topics we cover. Tough topics tend to attract fast adjusters and repel the rest. 
To move past the deeply troubling information laid out before us requires us to be willing to endure a bit of turbulence. It's the only way. For you to navigate these troubling times safely and successfully, you'll need to see as clearly as possible the true nature of the game actually being played. To see what the rules really are, not what you've been told they are, not what you wish or hope that they are. This means you have to accept that there's some serious manipulation underway. He says the data above strongly supports the conclusion that our national health managers don't actually care about public health generally or your health specifically. If indeed true, then the beliefs preventing most people from accepting this likely include first, wanting to believe that people are good. That's a biggie for most people. Secondly, trust and faith in the medical system, really big. And faith in authority, which is ginormous. There are many other operative belief systems, he says, he could also list, but that's sufficient to get the ball rolling. Picking just one, how hard would it be for someone to let go of, say, trust in the medical system? That would be pretty hard in most cases. First, not trusting the medical system might mean having to wonder if a loved one might have died unnecessarily while being treated, or realizing you're now going to have to research the living daylights out of every medical decision before agreeing to it, or worrying that your medications might be more harmful to you over the long haul than helpful, which is true in many more cases than most appreciate. It might mean having your personal heroes dinged by suspicion, perhaps even your father or mother who works or worked in the medical profession. It would definitely require a complete reorientation away from being able to trust anything you read in a newspaper or see on TV about new pharmaceutical breakthroughs. Trust which is safe and warm and comforting then turns into skepticism, which is lonelier and insists upon an active mental involvement. But as always, he says, hard work comes with benefits. And with a healthy level of skepticism and involvement, the families of those recruited into the deadly UK recovery trial could have looked at the proposed doses of hydroxychloroquine, 2,400 milligrams on day one, toxic, and said, not now, not ever. Maybe even have saved the life of their loved one. Look at that tangled mess of undesirables that comes with unpacking that one belief. Regret, uncertainty, shame, doubt, fallen idols, and vastly more additional effort are all up for grabs when we decide to look carefully at the actions of our national health managers during COVID, which he says is why most people simply choose not to look. It's too hard. And he says, I get it. I have compassion for, pe- for why people choose not to go down that path. It can get unpleasant, unpleasant rather in a hurry. But just like choosing to ignore a nagging chest pain, turning away in denial has its own consequences. And from here, he talks about the coming Great Reset. He says, my coverage of SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and COVID-19, the associated disease, has led me to uncover some things that have made me deeply uncomfortable about our global and national managers. Shameful things, really. Scary things and their implications for what we might reasonably expect or not expect more accurately from the future. Once we get past the shock of seeing just how patently corrupt they've become, we have to ask both what's next and what should I do. After all, he says you live in a system whose managers are either too dumb to understand the vitamin D data, very unlikely, or have decided they'd rather not promote it to the general populace for some reason. 
It's a ridiculously safe vitamin with almost zero downside and virtually unlimited upside. So he says either they're colossally dumb or this is a calculated decision. And then he answers that by saying, look, they're not dumb. So we have to ask, what is the calculation being performed here? It's not public safety. It's not your personal health. So what is it? And I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but I'm going to do exactly that. And we'll tackle the answer just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Again, I'm sharing with you an article here. This is by Chris Martinson. Sorry, I was calling him Chris McPherson. Chris Martinson. Uh, writing about what is the bigger game that we find ourselves unwitting pawns of. And it's part of the Great Reset, or what he's referring to as the Great Reset. And look, I know that for some people this is like, okay, time to put on the tinfoil hat. I would say keep the tinfoil hat handy if you want, but consider what, uh, what Chris has to say here and then, you know, judge it based on its merits or lack thereof. He starts with the question here. What is the calculation being performed here? Why are we being kept from perfectly legal, easy-to-obtain, over-the-counter remedies that could help with uh, COVID and, uh, you know, the, the, the illness, and yet we're not? What is going on? What's the, what's the calculation being performed here? He says, this is our line of questioning and observation. It's like the short story by Arthur Conan Doyle in Silver Blaze, that many of us informally know as the case of the dog that didn't bark. As the story goes, because of a missing clue, a dog who remained silent as a murder was committed, this conclusion could be drawn. The dog was already familiar with the killer. So the silence around vitamin D alone, Chris Martinson says, is extremely telling. It's the pharmacological dog that did not bark. One true inference suggests others. Here, too, he says we can deduce from the near-total silence around vitamin D that health managers would prefer not to talk about it. They don't want people to know. That much is painfully clear. Such lack of promotion, let alone appropriate study, of safe, effective treatments is a thread that, if tugged, can unravel the whole rug. And he says that silence tells us everything we need to know. Do they want people to suffer and die? I don't know. He says my belief systems certainly hope not. Perhaps the death and suffering are just collateral damage as they pursue a different goal. Money? Power? Politics? Simply the depressing result of a contentious election year? More than that? He says, we've now reached the jumping off point where we may well find out just how far down the rabbit hole goes. A massive grab for tighter control over the global populace is now being fast-tracked at the highest levels. And then he asks, have you heard of the Great Reset yet? If not, you soon will. Interesting. That may be a bit much, right? I mean, that's that's a lot to get your mind around. So let's let's dwell on something 
a little more pleasant. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about getting together for family gatherings and social events. After all, it's November. Christmas music officially started on a lot of people's uh, playlists. So as the holidays approach, I'm sure you're probably wondering, what can I do? What can I do to do my part to be a responsible citizen? Well, the state of California is going to help you with that. And I thought I would share with you a few thoughts from the L.A. Times about what's being expected of the citizens of California when it comes to holiday gatherings. And I only share this with the understanding that, look, what starts in California seldom stays in California. I promise you there will be other state authorities who will be like, hey, that's not a bad idea. We ought to try that. The article says, with the holiday season approaching, California last week released new guidelines for socializing, prohibiting gatherings among more than three households. While coronavirus cases are dipping and hospitalizations and deaths are at their lowest levels in month, by the way, just a quick aside, it's not an epidemic at this point. It's a case-demic, and there is a huge difference. I'll see if I can find the video that I found earlier on Twitter that uh, has an epidemiologist explaining the difference between an epidemic where there's lots of deaths and a case-demic where there are lots of case numbers, but the deaths are very, very low by comparison. It was a brilliant explanation, and I think it's well worth your time. I'll see if I can find that included in the show notes. So officials are in California are emphasizing the importance of maintaining health safety measures. Governor Gavin Newsom last week said, we are entering into the holidays, but also entering into part of the year when things cool down and people are more likely to congregate in settings that put their physical proximity and likelihood of transmitting disease at higher risk. He also says, don't be misled that this disease is any less deadly. Quite the contrary. It is as deadly as any, it is is as deadly as it's ever been in the context of those that are high risk. I don't disagree with him, by the way. I just think he may be overstating this a bit uh, for, for dramatic effect. Newsom has warned about the upcoming flu season, which could create added challenges in battling the coronavirus, as well as the arrival of colder weather that may prompt people to spend more time indoors. So to protect public health and slow the rate of transmission, the state had previously banned all gatherings of any kind as well as mingling of households. Here are the latest guidelines. So let me wish you the best in in implementing these. Number one, attendance. Gatherings that include more than three households are prohibited. This includes everyone present, including hosts and guests. Remember, the smaller the number of people, the safer. Keep the households you interact with that you interact with stable over time. By spending time with the same people, risk of transmission is reduced. Participating in multiple gatherings with different households or groups is strongly discouraged. Oh, and here's my favorite. The host should collect the names of all attendees and contact information in case contact tracing is is needed later. Number two, gather outdoors. Gatherings that occur outdoors are significantly safer than indoor gatherings. All gatherings must be held outside. Attendees may go inside to use restrooms as long as the restrooms are frequently sanitized. Gatherings may occur in outdoor spaces that are covered by umbrellas, canopies, awnings, roofs, and other shade structures, provided that at least 75% of the space, or three sides, are open to the outdoors. A gathering of no more than three households is permitted in a public park or other outdoor space, even if unrelated gatherings of other groups, up to three households, are also occurring in the same space or other outdoor space. 
If multiple such gatherings are occurring, mixing between group gatherings is not allowed. Additionally, multiple gatherings of three households cannot be jointly organized or coordinated to occur in the same park or other outdoor space at the same time. This would constitute a gathering exceeding the permitted size. Okay, that's actually not terribly surprising there. Number three, don't attend gatherings if you feel sick or in a high-risk group. Again, this makes sense. Anyone with COVID-like symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath, chills, night sweats, sore throat, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, muscle or body aches, headaches, confusion, loss of sense of taste or smell, must stay home and not come in contact with anyone outside their household. Anyone who develops COVID-19 within 48 hours after attending a gathering should notify the other attendees as soon as possible regarding the potential exposure. People at higher risk of severe illness or death from COVID-19, like older adults or people with chronic medical conditions, are strongly urged not to attend any gatherings. Physical distancing and hand hygiene will be practiced at gatherings. That means they want everybody to maintain at least a six-foot physical distance from others, not including their own household at all times. Seating must provide at least six feet of distance in all directions, front to back and side to side, between different households. Everyone at the gathering should frequently wash their hands with soap and water or use hand sanitizer if soap and water are not available. A place to wash hands or hand sanitizer must be available for participants to use, and shared items should not be used during a gathering. As much as possible, food or beverages should be in single-serve disposable containers. Boy, that just kind of sums up how Thanksgiving has always been, right? If providing single-serve containers is not possible, food and beverages must be served by a person who washes or sanitizes their hands frequently and wears a face covering. Self-serve items from communal containers should not be used. Also, wear a face covering to keep coronavirus from spreading. Nah, I'll skip that one. Keep it short is one of the next ones. Gathering should be two hours or less. The longer the duration, the risk of transmission increases. So you flew across the country. It doesn't matter. Two hours, and then Grandma and Grandpa are out the door. Oh, and finally, rules for singing, chanting, and shouting at outdoor gatherings. I thought you would enjoy this. Singing, chanting, shouting, and physical exertion significantly increase the risk of COVID-19 transmission because these activities increase the release of respiratory droplets and fine aerosols into the air. Because of this, singing, chanting, and shouting are strongly discouraged, but if they occur, well, then you have to follow these rules. Instrumental music is allowed as long as the musicians maintain at least a six-foot physical distancing. All people singing or chanting should wear a face covering at all times while singing or chanting, including anyone who's leading a song or chant. Because these risks pose a very high risk, these activities rather pose a very high risk of COVID-19 transmission, face coverings are essential to reduce the spread of respiratory droplets and fine aerosols. Oh no, it gets better. People who are singing, shouting, chanting, or exercising are encouraged to maintain physical distancing beyond six feet and they're strongly encouraged to do so quietly the singing and chanting at or below the volume of a normal speaking voice. Other than that, have a marvelous Thanksgiving. And of course, we'll be back with some Christmas guidelines, I'm sure, at some point in the future. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us. I know there are many voices and many places out there, information outlets where you could be getting information to help you make sense of the world around you. Thanks for choosing The Brian Hyde Show. And I would encourage you, please check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I want to want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. It's been almost a month. It'll be a month on Wednesday since uh, the courageous scientists who signed this declaration uh, put their names on paper and said, look, there's a better way to address the threat of COVID-19 than shutting everything down. And I bring this up because I came across a, this is a, a column written by Dr. Sunetra Gupta, who is one of the three primary signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. And she describes her experience in battling a contagion of hatred and hysteria. And that is putting it mildly at what has been leveled at her, as well as uh, two of the other primary signatories, as well as thousands and thousands of other people who have put their their signature on that Great Barrington Declaration. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that she has all the answers and you can only trust her and nobody else. But I'm going to point out something which I've understood for a long time, which is people who have actually suffered for their beliefs, people who have been willing to take a hit for standing on principle. To me, they are much more credible than those who have absolutely no skin in the game. In other words, the people who are chanting from the sidelines, the ones who are, you know, lobbing their their insults from a safe distance in the anonymity of the crowd, sure, sure, they've, they've got something to say. But how credible are they? Not nearly as credible as the people who are actually on the field willing to suffer for what they're trying to do. And Dr. Sunetra Gupta, I think, is, is one of those individuals who has a message worth considering. She says, lockdown is a blunt, indiscriminate policy that forces the poorest and most vulnerable people to bear the brunt of the fight against coronavirus. As an infectious diseases epidemiologist, she says, I believe there has to be a better way. And that is why, last month with two other international scientists, she co-authored a proposal for an alternative approach, one that shields those most at risk while enabling the rest of the population to resume their ordinary lives to some extent. She said, I expect a debate and disagreement about our ideas, published as the Great Barrington Declaration. As a scientist, I would welcome that. After all, science progresses through its ideas and counter-ideas. But she says, I was totally, I was utterly unprepared, rather, for the onslaught of insults, personal criticism, intimidation, and threats that met our proposal. The level of vitriol and hostility, not just from members of the public online, but from journalists and academics, has horrified me. Now she points out, she says, I'm not a politician. The hurly-burly of political life and being in the eye of the media do not appeal to me at all. I am first and foremost a scientist, one who is far more comfortable sitting in my office or laboratory than in front of a television camera. Of course, I do have deeply held political beliefs, ones that I would describe as inherently left-wing. I would not, it's fair to say, normally align myself with the Daily Mail. She says, I have strong views about the distribution of wealth, about the importance of the welfare state, about the need for publicly owned utilities and government investment in nationalized industries. But she said, COVID-19 is not a political phenomenon. 
It is a public health issue. Indeed, it is one so serious that the response to it has already led to a humanitarian crisis. And so she says, I have been aghast to see a political rift open up with outright abuse meted out to those who, like me, question the orthodoxy. Dr. Gupta says, at the heart of our proposal is the recognition that mass lockdowns cause enormous damage. She says, we're already seeing how current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short- and long-term public health. The results, to name just a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health. She says, such pitfalls of national lockdowns must not be ignored especially when it is the working class and younger members of society who carry the heaviest burden. Now, Dr. Sinetra Gupta says, I was also deeply concerned that lockdowns would only delay the inevitable spread of the virus. Indeed, we believe that a better way forward would be to target protective measures at specific vulnerable groups, such as the elderly in care homes. Of course, there will be challenges such as where people being cared for in, such as where people are being cared for in their own multi-generational family homes. And she says I'm certainly not pretending I have all the answers, but these issues need to be discussed and thrashed out thoroughly. And she says that's why I have found it so frustrating how in recent weeks proponents of lockdown policies have seemed intent on shutting down debate rather than promoting reasoned discussion. She says, it's perplexing to me that so many refuse to even consider the potential benefits of allowing non-vulnerable citizens, such as the young, to go about their lives and risk infection when in doing so they would build up herd immunity and thereby protect the lives of vulnerable citizens. Yet rather than engage in serious, rational discussion with us, she says, our critics have dismissed our ideas as pixie dust and wishful thinking. And she says this refusal to cherish the value of the scientific method strikes at the heart of everything I, as a scientist, hold dear. She says, to me, the reasoned exchange of ideas is the basis of civilized society. And so she says, I was left stunned after being invited onto a mid-morning radio program recently, only for a producer to warn me minutes before we went on the air that I was not to mention the Great Barrington Declaration. The producer repeated the warning and indicated this was an instruction from a senior broadcasting executive. I demanded an explanation, she says, and with seconds to go was told that the public wouldn't be familiar with the meaning of the phrase Great Barrington Declaration. And she says, then this was not an isolated experience. A few days later, another national radio station approached my office to set up an interview, then withdrew the invitation. They felt on reflection that giving airtime to me would be would not be in the national interest. But she says the Great Barrington Declaration represents a heartfelt attempt by a group of academics with decades of experience in this field to limit the harm of lockdown. And she says, I cannot conceive how anyone can construe this as against the national interest. Moreover, she says, matters certainly are not helped by outlets such as The Guardian, which has repeatedly published opinion pieces making factually incorrect and scientifically flawed statements, as well as borderline defamatory comments about me, while refusing to give our side of the debate an opportunity to present our view. She says, I'm surprised, given the importance of the issues at stake, 
not least the principle of fair, balanced journalism, that The Guardian would not want to present all the evidence to its readers. After all, how else are we to encourage proper, frank debate about the science? On social media, meanwhile, much of this, the discourse has lacked any decorum whatsoever. She says, I've all but stopped using Twitter, but I am aware that a number of academics have taken to using it to make personal attacks on my character, while my work is dismissed as pseudoscience. Depressingly, our critics have also taken to re- ridiculing the Great Barrington Declaration as fringe and dangerous. But she says, fringe is a ridiculous word, implying that only mainstream science matters. If that were the case, she says science would stagnate, and dismissing us as dangerous is equally unhelpful, not least because it's an inflammatory, emotional term charged with implications of irresponsibility. When it's hurled around by people with influence, she says it becomes toxic. But she said this pandemic is an international crisis. To shut down the discussion with abuse and smears, that is truly dangerous. And yet, she says, of all the criticisms flung at us, the one I find most upsetting is that we are indulging in policy-based evidence-making. In other words, drumming up facts to fit our ideological agenda. According to Wikipedia, for instance, the Great Barrington Declaration was funded by a right-wing think tank with links to climate change deniers. (laughs) Now, she says it should be obvious to anyone that writing a short proposal and posting it on a website requires no great financing. But she says, let me spell it out for you anyway. Since I have to, apparently. I did not accept payment to co-author the Great Barrington Declaration. Money has never been the motivation in my career. And she says it hurts me profoundly that anyone who knows me, or even has a passing professional acquaintance, could believe for a moment I would accept clandestine payment for anything. She says, when I signed the Great Barrington Declaration on October 4th, I did so with fellow scientists to express our view that national lockdowns won't cure us of COVID. Clearly, she says, none of us anticipated such a vitriolic response, and the abuse that followed has been nothing short of shameful. But she says, rest assured, whatever they throw at us, it won't do anything to sway me or my colleagues from the principles that sit behind what we wrote. It's a great read. I really encourage you, check it out for yourself. It'll be in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.